0: An initiative of franciscan university of steubenville faithandreason.com be transformed by the renewal of your mind thank you very much scott and uh that book walking with god i have to tell you that when you read through that book you're going to you're going to hear the voice of our teacher which is dr scott Hahn. and when i came to the university here uh, god introduced me to scott and kimberly as wonderful friends that I will be forever indebted to, and this university which has been so good, so good to us. I know I was thinking before we pray and get going on tonight's uh, second talk, I was thinking about Cardinal Regali's talk, and I have to tell you that there is so much similarity in what he was sharing and what I was trying to prepare for the talk. That as almost every other line, I was thinking to myself, that's what I was trying to articulate. And you just get up and do it so well. And that is one of the highlights of all of my years of coming to the conference. And I've been here for about 15, 16 years now. And I have to tell you that that talk, I'm getting the CD. And that's going to go on my iPod, my iPad, my iPhone, and my iMac. And I'm going to listen to that over and over and over, which is ironic because I'm going to talk this evening about the noise and the confusion in our lives and how busy we become and how we can bring focus to our lives. And so I'm going to pray, but when I share with you this evening, I have to tell you that Some of what I'm sharing this evening is literally the result of my own struggle in my life. In the midst of confusion, in the midst of busyness and emails and RSS feeds and being connected to the internet 24-7. In the midst of all of that, I am attempting to find Christ and to grow spiritually. And what I'm finding out is that there's a lot of noise out there And I'm finding it difficult to get the mind of Christ. And that's what I want in my life. And I know that you've come to this great conference and that you want that too. That you didn't just come here just to learn something, but you came here to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so that's what I want to talk about as we start this off and... Tomorrow, you're going to have a lot of wonderful opportunities for different teaching, and, and it's going to start filling in all of the, the blanks. But join with me in prayer right now. I'd like to pray, and I've got some, some wonderful scriptures and some wonderful quotes that I want to share with you about trying to find meaning in our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you tonight for the wonderful message that we've already heard. We are, we're full with that message. Lord, we pray that throughout the next couple of days you would help us to unpack that and to realize the truths of what the Cardinal said and how we can appropriate that in our lives. We ask for you to help us because we know that we cannot do this alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. I want to quickly read the scriptures that Dr. Hahn mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and to just let those words hit us in our own minds when Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says, as you just heard, do not be conformed to this world. And as we're talking tonight, over the next couple of days, ask yourself, am I being conformed to this world? Who am I more conformed to, the world or Christ? Am I more like the world or am I more like Jesus? Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Apostle Paul also went on and he spoke to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and he said, said, let me tell you something. You know, we're unique people as Christians. We're different than the world and saying that in Corinth is really something. To be Corinthianized was to be a part of a culture that was quite opposite of the kingdom of God. And Paul said, we have not received the spirit of the world You know, we're not like the world. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God. So that, now we've received the spirit that's from God, so that we may understand the things freely given us by God. And we speak about them not with words taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the spirit, describing spiritual realities in spiritual terms. Now the natural person does not accept what pertains to the spirit of God for to him it is foolishness and he cannot understand it because it is judged spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can judge everything but is not subject to judgment by anyone. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to counsel him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And you know what I've been finding out? That there are a lot of other minds out there competing to be king of the mountain in my life. As Cardinal Regali said, a numbing gale force wind is hitting us. And whose mind do we have? What thoughts occupy our minds. The media and marketing machines all understand that you are searching for something in your life. They know you're searching for meaning in your life. They know your struggle. You struggle with your self-image. You struggle with your past. You struggle with your future. You struggle with your time and you struggle even to get to sleep. They know you are stressed and they don't have enough advertising in the world to satisfy us because we're always looking for that one more message, that one thing that's going to bring that peace in our lives. So they offer a plan, or should I say a part of a plan, like Oprah. I don't know if you knew it, but Oprah's got a plan for your life. Dr. Phil, Ellen has a plan for your life. And that's why our culture is inundated with self-help books and middle-of-the-night infomercials. What's the key to solving your problem? Sell real estate. (laughs) Now, there's nothing wrong with selling real estate, but I've got news for you tonight. That is not the solution to your problem, and that's not what you came here for. But after reading 34 books that Oprah recommended, after listening to the dozens of CDs by... Tony Robbins, and after underlining the pertinent paragraphs of Dr. Phil and understanding all there is about Mars and Venus and learning Mandarin language I raced through the airport with Rosetta, <laughs> I still am continuing to search and still thinking about buying this or that. So while we continue to clutter our lives with more media, entertainment, clothing, gadgets, clubs, subscriptions, memberships, mailing lists, RSS feeds, meetings, there is something in all of us that cries out for simplicity. Something that cries out where we say, I just wanna wake up in the morning and I wanna be focused and I wanna follow Christ and I wanna give my life to those things that are really, really important in my life rather than being hit by so much noise. An advertisement. So while gathering more on the outside and in here, there is something in here that says this isn't it. So I wanna to talk to you about identifying the life that you are searching for because God has a plan and a challenge to simplify our lives and to renew our minds so that we can walk with the mind of Christ and that we can see the world through the eyes of Christ and that we can make decisions about priorities and say no to those things that are not satisfying our hearts and say yes to those things that God created us for. Before I get into some of the problems that we face, and I, think, I don't think I know what the solution is, which is Jesus Christ, I want to go back to Vatican II in the 1960s to a very important document called Gaudium et Spes, the Church in the Modern World. When I was at Franciscan University, Dr. Alan Schreck is the one who taught me this document. And for my final, I had to go and I had to give uh, a a, a talk to him about this document. And so this document I fell in love with back here at Franciscan University. And I found out that there was a cardinal who had an awful lot to do with this document called Carol Waitia, Pope John Paul II. Where They spoke about in this document the problems that we're facing today in 1965, not 2010 in the middle of the Internet era. But 1965, in the middle of things are a-changing with Bob Dylan, the times where it was simple and life was easy, or so we think. Gaudi mit I want to read some of this to you and kind of give a little commentary in the middle of it, and I know that kind of breaks the rules of public speaking to do some reading, but I think that Vatican II is a treasure that many of us are not tapping into, and John Paul II made this the, the focal point of his pontificate to carry it out. And now Pope Benedict is leading and continuing in that. It says, today, oh, this is so good. Today, and and by the way, you gotta get the document. It's gotta be a part of every family library. Today, the human race is is involved in a new stage of history. Profound and rapid changes are spreading by degrees around the whole world, triggered by the intelligence and creative energies of man These changes recoil upon him, upon his decisions and desires, both individual and collective, and upon his manner of thinking and acting with respect to things and to people. Hence, we can already speak of a true cultural and social transformation, one which has repercussions on man's religious life, as well. Notice there in Vatican II, they said that there are cultural and social transformations that are taking place. But what we are called to is transformation by taking on the the mind of Christ, having our, our mind renewed. And what Vatican II said so well is that man painstakingly searches for a better world, but catch this, man searches for a better world today, technologically and socially in every aspect, medically, but without a corresponding spiritual advancement. Without a corresponding spiritual advancement. Influenced, it says, it goes on it says, influenced by such a variety of complexities. Many of our contemporaries are kept from accurately identifying and, and let me ask you if, if this is true in your life, or, or maybe someone in your family, or someone that you know. Influenced by such a variety of complexities, many of our contemporaries are kept from accurately identifying permanent values. Modern man is prevented from identifying permanent values and adjusting them properly to fresh discoveries. So you got the iPhone, and then you got the 3G, and then you got the 3GS, and you stood in line for the 4. But how do we adapt or how do we adjust permanent values to these fresh discoveries? Or is our life all about just grabbing a hold of fresh discoveries? As a result, it says, buffeted between hope and anxiety and pressing one another with questions about the present course of events, They are burdened down with uneasiness. The same course of events leads men to look for answers. Indeed, it forces them to do so. So, you know, when the Cardinal was talking about evangelization and that's something that we all need to be involved in, I go about it from the standpoint that every person I meet is searching. They might act confident and they might act like they have it together and their wallet might be bulging, but I know that in here they're searching. They're searching. As we search for a better world, we don't have a corresponding spiritual advancement. We have information overload. We don't know how to apply the information to our lives. And so we continue to take in more data and more information and more toys and more gadgets, but are we paying attention to our spiritual growth inside? Now, I told you at the beginning of the talk, I'm sharing with you from my own heart tonight in that I find at times I have to stop and say, no, no more. I need to slow down here. I realize that I haven't even contemplated my own spiritual condition for quite some time, that I'm just going and going and going. And I get back to that, that famous saying, it was made famous in the last 15 years, that people wore little bracelets, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Sometimes we're going so fast that we don't even ask the question, what would Jesus do? Gaudium et Spes goes on and says, within the individual person there develops rather frequently an imbalance between an intellect which is modern in practical matters and a theoretical system of thought which can neither master the sum total of its ideas nor arrange them adequately into a synthesis. And that's what I'm discovering that a lot of people are struggling with today, is that they've got so much data and so much knowledge and information about the world and so much stimulus, but they cannot arrange all of this into a synthesis that makes sense out of life. And it leaves them empty. The council went on and said the truth is that the imbalances under which the modern world labors are linked with that more basic imbalance, which is rooted in the heart of man. And so the imbalance that we experience culturally is really rooted in our own hearts, in what we're giving our attention to. It's the result, I should say, of what we're giving our attention to. For in man himself, many elements wrestle with one another. You ever felt like that? Thus, on the one hand, as a creature, he experiences his limitations in a multitude of ways. On the other hand, he feels himself to be boundless in his desires and summoned to a higher life. And then it says, pulled by manifold attractions, he is constantly forced to choose among them and renounce some. Thinking they have found serenity in an interpretation of reality, everywhere proposed these days, many look forward to a genuine and total emancipation of humanity wrought solely by human effort. But then the church goes on and it tells us the answer. That the church experiences this angst just like the world. But we have something different. We have an answer. We have the mind of Christ. And it goes on and says, she, the church, likewise, holds that in her most benign Lord and Master, can be found the key, the key. And I love what Paul said. He said to the Philippians, he said, I have learned to live with a lot and I've learned to live with a little. I have learned the secret that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Pope Paul VI said, the church also maintains that beneath all changes, there are many realities which do not change and which have their ultimate foundation in Christ. My friends, the good news today is this, and the catechism starts off with it in the very first paragraph, and it says, God has a plan of sheer goodness. God has a plan of sheer goodness. And that plan of sheer goodness is laid out in salvation history, and we can come to understand that plan for our lives And you've already demonstrated a great hunger for that by coming here, but that plan can be realized in our lives by pouring ourselves into Scripture study and meditating on Scripture and doing it. And the catechism, the sacred tradition is reflected in the catechism, pouring ourselves into this tradition, this marvelous tradition, taking advantage of the sacraments and sitting before the Lord and receiving the Eucharist. And so, we know that God has a plan for our life. I mean, everybody here, just by a show of hands, how many of you would agree, you knew coming in here that God has a plan. You pretty much had an idea. God has a plan for your life. But the church tells us, in Gaudium et Spes, in paragraph 43, that there is a problem. A huge problem today. And you know what that is? That huge problem is, it says in paragraph 43 is this this split between the faith which many profess and their daily lives deserves to be counted among the more serious errors of our age the split between faith and everyday life and so somehow some way we have to bridge that gap between our faith and our everyday life and we have to renew our minds and not be conformed to the world, but we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can live everyday life. And that, that whole paragraph uh, the whole paragraph ends this way. It is, it, these words are nothing short of just delicious. It says, <laughs> that's actually a theological term, delicious. The Christian who neglects his temporal duties, neglects his duties towards his neighbor and even God and jeopardizes his eternal salvation. Christians should rather rejoice that following the example of Christ who worked as an artisan, they are free to give proper exercise to all their earthly activities and to their humane, domestic, professional, social, and technical enterprises by doing what? This is great. By gathering all of that, gathering them into One vital synthesis with religious values under whose supreme direction all things are harmonized under God's glory. My friends, I want you to know tonight that it's the mind of Christ and getting to know Christ that's going to harmonize all of this into a synthesis so that we can live a purposeful life as Catholics. Jesus is the key. But you know what? I've run into problems, and uh, I don't know what it is. And my wife always tells me, she says, whatever you're running into, you have a way of blurting it out when you speak. (laughs) And so I'm going to work this out in front of you. It's actually something I've been really dealing with in my own life for a number of years, and it's a constant, a constant adjustment in my life. I'll be honest with you. You know, when I came back into the Catholic Church, Back in the 90s, it wasn't just, oh, I'm glad to take that off my checklist. I'm glad I'm back in the church. Now all my problems are done. But it's an ongoing battle to give my will over to the will of God, to give my mind over to Christ, to roll up my sleeves and do what God wants me to do. And here's one of the problems. We are created in the image and likeness of God. Um, <laughs> I have an intellect, and I have a will, But there's another aspect to being created in the image and likeness of God that I started thinking about a while ago, and that is this, that God is not limited by time. We are limited by time to a certain extent, aren't we? We are living in the here and the now. But I started thinking that human beings are different than animals in that we can project out into the future. And not only can we project into the future, but we can live in the past. And so like God, who is outside of time, in the past, in the future, in the now, we find ourselves doing this also. We find ourselves struggling. And there was a a new book out that I, I was reading called Simple Life. It was a father and a son writing this book about trying to simplify their life. And they made a great point when they said, For many of us, the past and the future are something more than just the past and the future. They are our competition. The past is my competition. The future becomes my competition. They drive us beyond healthy limits. For some of us, much of our daily schedule, the rigors we put ourselves through, is a result of fear. We fear the future. We fear the past. And while we concern ourselves with one or both, we forget about the present, the only moment where we have some real control of our lives. But I've got news for you. We often stumble when our past and our future compete with the present. But you know what the good news is? Jesus Christ, who is in the past, in the future, came into the present to show us how to live. And so this isn't something that Jesus didn't contend with, the past and the future cross. But he came into the present to show us how to live, and that's what we want, don't we? We want the mind of Christ so that we can live our lives today. The real voyage, one writer said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new vision. New vision. We need new visions that sees that life is more than what the world is selling. Not only can we clutter our past and future with overwhelming challenges, but we can challenge our present with complexity and stuff in our lives. Earlier this year, a global marketing (laughs) research firm announced that almost everybody agrees with the statement, there is never enough time in the day to get done what I need to get done. How many of you have ever said that before? There just isn't time in the day. And I felt like that many times in my life. And uh, time is an interesting thing because God has given us all 24 hours a day and he's given us adequate time to do what we are called to do. I'm married, I have three girls, I have a wife, and I am a father, I'm a husband, and God has given me 24 hours a day to be a father, and to be a husband. But someone once observed, and I believe it was Einstein, that said that God invented time to keep everything from happening at once. (laughs) And I I think that could be true. But, But what I find with my mentality at times is that I reverse that, and it's like I'm trying to make everything happen at once. Multitasking is the the word of the day. How many times do we see people walking down the street doing this? Sitting at soccer games the other day, there were, I counted them, 15 parents watching the soccer game doing this. And I thought to myself, we're not here. We're not in one place anymore. We're trying to do everything. Have you noticed when you were a kid how time was slow? Time was so slow when you were a kid. Summer seemed like an eternity. I got to thinking, I think it's like, you know, for kids, God puts training wheels on time. He puts training wheels on time so that they can learn to live because he knows that when they grow older, the training wheels are coming off and you're going to experience time as it really is. And the older you get, the faster that bike goes. Have you noticed that? I mean, look at me, 30 years old, and time is really, really going. (laughs) And your kids will come up to you in the middle of the summer and they'll say, I'm bored. And I'll say, good, I'll take the training wheels off, mow the lawn. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I found that to be so true that time is elusive. Time just seems to get away from us. And we become frustrated when we live our lives. We become so frustrated when we live in this time and we live our lives as though this was all there was. And this is what we've set our heart in. Now this problem gets back to idolatry. This problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This problem of the heart and what we set our hearts on in our minds. When you look back in Genesis chapter 3 and you see the fall of Adam and Eve, when you first read it and you see the results of original sin, and then you go back and you read carefully what Eve did, there's something that doesn't make sense. For it tells us in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, that she saw the fruit and she saw that it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It made one wise. What's not to like about that? What is not to like about something that's beautiful to the eyes, tastes good, and it makes you wise? What's not to like about it? And so I went a little bit further And many of you know that St. Augustine, from his confessions, wrestled with this issue of sin, and he identifies, as you've perhaps seen and read in some of Dr. Hahn's works and some of the other talks that you've heard over the years, that St. Augustine really wrestled with his sin of stealing pears off of a pear tree, and he asked himself why. Why did I do it? And his conclusion was that I did it for sin, sin for sin's sake. But that's bad philosophy. That's not right. We don't choose things that are going to hurt us and kill us. We choose things that are going to make us happy. So why did I do it? His conclusion was, I did it. I stole the pears. I threw them at a bunch of pigs. Why? Because I wanted the affirmation of my friends. I went after a good and I made that the best. I made that a God. And so... When we take anything in our lives and we we take any creation in our lives and elevate it to God or the creator, it's idolatry. And our lives will instantly be out of balance. What's not to like about smartphones? What's not to like about email? Well, there's a few things there, but what... What's not to like about Netflix? What's not to like about TiVo? What's not to like about iPads and sports and bowling and hunting and scrapbooking? <laughs> now that's not my own personal thing, don't get me wrong, I'm not. Phew. What's not to like about clothing and shoes and cars and motorcycles and Xbox and tech, Xbox and texting and boats? You fill in the blank, but when That gets your attention, and that is elevated to where God should be in your life and your attention, and giving your mind over to that. We're all out of whack. We're imbalanced. What gets our attention is narrowed to the creation rather than living with eternity in our mind. Why don't I walk with the mind of Christ? Why don't I walk with the mind of Christ? I'll tell you why I don't walk with the mind of Christ, because I've got other things on my mind. (laughs) I got everything on my mind. And I've got to take that clutter and push it back. And I have to start giving myself over to the basics of the faith of relationship, filial relationship with Christ, reading the Bible. Not reading the Bible to teach a group, but reading the Bible because God wants to talk to me. God wants to speak to me. Reading the catechism and delighting in it and experiencing the sacraments and submitting myself to the magisterial teaching of the church. But Paul said to the Corinthians, a very complex society that lived on this isthmus where the the Isthmian games took place, he said, He said, I'm afraid of something, my fellow brothers. I am afraid of something for you. You know what it is? Here's what I'm afraid of. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, just like I read to you in Genesis chapter 3, he says, I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Ah, just saying those words even makes me joyful. The simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. We can't lose that, no matter how exciting things are. A great quote that I ran across that's one of my probably my top two or three thousand quotes. It's 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 another delicious quote. Listen to this. It says, By a man by the name of Samuel Johnson, he says, It is generally allowed that no man ever found the happiness of possession proportionate to that expectation which incited his desire and invigorated his pursuit. Isn't that something? It is generally allowed that no man ever found the happiness of possession proportionate to that expectation which incited his desire. And invigorated his pursuit, nor has any man found the evils of life so formidable in reality as they were described to him by his own imagination. Every species of distress brings with it some peculiar supports, some unforeseen means of resisting, or powers of enduring. C. S. Lewis said in his book, The Power or the, the Problem of Pain, he said, All things, all things that have ever dearly possessed your mind should have been but hints of heaven. Everything that has deeply possessed your mind should have been hints of heaven, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the more probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly possessions were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And so, my friends, I want to submit to you this evening that if your mind, if your mind is deeply possessed by things and hobbies, which there's nothing wrong with things, there's nothing wrong with a hobby, but if your mind is deeply possessed, wake up to what C.S. Lewis said and realize that that is a hint to something you are called to and it isn't this world, but it's heaven. And so everything in this world has to be put in proper perspective. There was um, a study done by a psychologist by the name of Richard Ryan, and he did a study on the pursuit of affluence. And he mentioned that the pursuit of affluence has damaging psychological effects, including severe depression and anxiety. The cause, pursuing material things, we're told, will make our lives happier and more comfortable. In trade jargon, these items are called extrinsic value, values. In a series of case studies dating to 1993, Ryan and Kaiser examined the effects of pursuing money and material goods. They said that obtaining wealth as a goal creates a lower sense of well-being and self-esteem. No wonder we're not created for that. You'll never become who you are called to become if you just simply pursue affluence. The symptoms aren't tied to how much or little money a person already has, nor are they tied to what country a person lives in or their age. People from different income brackets in different countries and in different age groups shared a common characteristic. Everyone who pursued affluence as a goal turned in a lower mental health score. To be sure, affluence isn't destructive as an incidental benefit to the pursuit of other, more fulfilling and meaningful goals. It's the pursuit of such inner goals or intrinsic values that makes people experience a higher sense of vitality and fulfillment. One of the problems that we have is that our desire for things and being conformed to the way the world thinks rather than being transformed by the renewing of our minds is that it has bled over into not just physical things, but even just electronic stimulus in our lives. Email. Email is out of control. I'm just saying. It's out of control. Instant messaging is out of control. And there was a a recent uh, book by a guy called Tony Schwartz, and he, he did an excerpt from that book on the Huntington Post website. <laughs> I have no idea why it was there, how I found that out, but he mentioned in this article called Breaking the Email Addiction, something very interesting, and he said, he said today it isn't overload that we are battling as much as we are battling addiction. Addiction to what? Instant gratification, instant gratification. Sorry, I thought I had a message. Instant gratification. In addition to studies, they show that uh, many people today are checking their emails 10 to 15 times an hour. And they're checking their email because they're addicted. They're addicted to instant gratification, getting everything right now, that fix. And the study also showed that they were ignoring, they were so overloaded in their life, so busy, and they could take all of their work home with them in something this size. And that they couldn't get away from it. And so in order to get away from it, they went to their email to break up what they were supposed to be doing. And what they found was that those who multitask couldn't get done nearly as well what they were supposed to get done if they had only given their total concentration on that. And that's what I am discovering with the Lord right now, is that the Lord is telling me, don't multitask with me. Don't talk to me and multitask with all these other things. Give me your attention. Look at me. Look at me. Talk to me. Let me talk to you. In the late 1960's, and I want to talk to you for a few minutes here about what I think is really the solution. and It's actually very simple, but it's going to take quite a bit of effort. In the 1960's, there's a famous study called the Walter Mischel study, and it's a fascinating study. If you've got kids, you'll identify with us, where they took a bunch of four-year-olds, and they put the four-year-olds in a room, and then they put a marshmallow down in front of every four-year-old and then they put a little bell next to it. And Mitchell said to the little kids, listen, I'm gonna leave the room. If you want the marshmallow, all you gotta do is ring the bell and you can have the marshmallow. But if you will wait, if you'll wait till I come back in the room, I'll give you another marshmallow. You'll have two. The kids looked at him and said, okay. And so he left the room and there's the kids. He said 70% of the kids took the marshmallow and rang the bell in the first minute. 30% waited. And then he studied why. You know what his conclusion was? His conclusion was that the 70% who took of the marshmallow, even though they knew that they just had to wait a little bit and they'd get double, 70% of them took the marshmallow. You know why? You know what the common denominator was? They were staring at it. They were staring at the marshmallow and those, the 30% that got another marshmallow that resisted, found something else to look at. My friends, we need to stop staring at marshmallows. (laughs) We need to stop staring at marshmallows and we need to look at something else. And that is Christ, the Blessed Mother, the saints, the Bible, the catechism, the blessed sacrament. This is what God is offering us in our life today. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2, he said, I love this, he said, we need to set our minds on things above and not on earthly things. Even though we know that our reward in heaven is great, we ring the bell on earth we ring the bell on earth for everything that's coming our way, even though we know that if we'll wait and we'll put our lives in order and really focus on Jesus and do what he called us to do, there will be eternal rewards for us that can't even be compared to the sufferings that we go through today. What's the answer? It's the life of Christ. It's the life of Jesus. It's the mind of Christ. It's to be possessed by this desire and passion for Jesus for the kingdom of God for the things of God for the eternal riches and I know that it's difficult to say no to everything but you know what I know we can do it because Jesus came and what did he say in John 13:15 he said I have set you an example and he said in Ma- Matthew 6:33 seek first the kingdom of God And his righteousness and all of these things that the Gentiles even worry about will be added to us. I also love what Jesus said in John chapter 17. He said in the high priestly prayer, he said, Father, I have completed what you gave me to do. And what was his secret? That filial relationship. And the catechism says that that filial relationship was the thing that the devil in the temptation in the wilderness tried to get in the middle of. He knew that he could stop the Messiah if he could break the filial relation. And you know what breaks the filial relation so often in our lives today? Created things. Things become our father like idols in the Old Testament. And we need to repent of it. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said in verse 28, he said, Come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I would imagine Jesus or Paul would today have in their mind, Come to me, all who are weary. Stop Googling. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And then he says something so important that is so misunderstood. He says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Now, right away, we think about the yoke of an oxen, don't we? Don't we? Man, anyway, that's, that's different. I, I guess I could take that upon me. <laughs> Whatever it looks like. But what is a yoke? Well, the rabbis, they all said this phrase. Take my yoke upon you. So what was a yoke in rabbinic... Judaism? A yoke was, it meant, see the world the way I see the world. That was a yoke. Take my yoke upon you. See the world the way I see the world. Order your priorities. Order your schedule, your time, the, how, the way you talk to people, what you give yourself to, the way I do. And that's why studying scripture and the sacred tradition is so important that we get a glimpse and, a, and, a, and we soak in Jesus. The Catechism says in paragraph 2602 concerning prayer that his words and works, Jesus' words and works, are the visible manifestation of his prayer in secret. Everything emanated from that filial relationship, didn't it? And so Jesus teaches us to sanctify time. So I'd like to ask you a question. What are you going to do to learn his plan? You've got the Bible. You have the catechism. You have the magisterium. You have the church documents that were quoted from earlier. Where are you going to go to get the power to live the life of Christ? The Eucharist, prayer, the sacraments, emphasis on confirmation where you have become An official witness of Jesus and given power to be a witness and to resist this world and being conformed to it. What needs to change to ensure that you learn the plan? Receive grace to live it. What needs to change is our perspective from earthly to eternal where we set our hearts on those things that are above. We must be examples to our children in this generation. We cannot look and live the same way as the world. Christ is either the center of our life or we could be found as false witnesses. I believe that God, with all of my heart, I believe that God is raising up a people who will live differently, a people who have the mind of Christ, not just thinking differently, but living differently. But it starts with repentance, metanoia, a change in our lives. We can't do it on our own, so don't try. You can only do this. It's an impossibility and it can only be done with Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, a French monk in the 12th century, he said, so long then as I am not united to God, I am divided within myself and at perpetual strife within myself. Now this union with God can only be secured by love and the subjection to him can only be grounded in humility and the humility only be the result of knowing and believing the truth, that is to say, having the right notions of God and myself. I want to draw all of this to a close, but as I'm closing, I would like to show you a video in just a second. It's about a three-minute video. And it reminded me so much of the, some of you know in marketing, you know of what's called by Everett Rogers, the law of diffusion of innovation, where Rogers says, that when it comes to the, the law of diffusion of innovation, speaking of innovation, he says that there are in society, two and a half percent of society are innovators. They are people who innovate. It's the Michelangelos, it's the Dillons, it's, it's the Einsteins, it's the Fords, they're innovators. We have innovators in here today, I'm sure. But after two and a half percent innovators, we have 13 and a percent of what are called early adopters. Early adopters are those who stand in line for iPhones. Early adopters are those who they are on board quickly. And then you have 34% early majority and then 34% late majority and 16% laggards at the end. Laggards are the ones who buy their cell phones because rotaries are no longer available, okay? (laughs) Jesus, while he is God, He was an innovator. And he was an innovator because he showed us how to live. He showed us how to live in a world that had their priorities all screwed up. And the apostles, early adopters, the first movers, the first ones to say, I'll follow you. I will follow you. I want to let you see this video. It's about three minutes. And you're going to hear in this video a man describing a movement at a concert where one man stands up and he starts to dance very silly all by himself, away from the thousands. And then he's joined by one man, an early adopter. And I want you to see yourself as that one person who said, you know what, I'll follow Christ, and I'll invite others with me, and that's how we change the world. That's how a movement begins. And you can find this, for those that are listening on CD, at www.sivers.s-i-v-e-r-s.org/ff.
1: If you've learned a lot about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal, so it's not about the leader anymore, it's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut, and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd, and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers, because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point, and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over-glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in.
0: I'd like to end my talk by asking you this. Are you willing to be a witness? Are you willing to stand up and be different and to go against what everyone else is doing? God is not looking for us to invent life. Jesus came and showed us how to live. He's looking for first followers. He's looking for people who will stand up and say, you know what? I will follow you. And I will do what you're doing, and I know that it's not popular. And as Cardinal Regali said, yes, we are out of step with the times. And we have taken on the yoke of Jesus and the mind of Christ. Do you have the courage, the path to nobility, as Cardinal Regali said? I want to encourage you today to be different and to take on the mind of Christ and to stand up and to be that example. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you today for, for being the innovator of innovators, showing us how to live and actually giving us life. And you've asked us now to pick up our cross. And even though it wasn't real popular even 2,000 years ago, and the apostles gave their lives for their witness, Lord, we will stand up today. And we will follow you in your example. We want to walk in the mind of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. God bless you and have a wonderful night. An initiative of Franciscan
1: University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.